What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. We have no advertisers on this podcast, so it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Callie Means is the co-founder of TrueMed. In this conversation, we talk about the incentives in the food and pharmaceutical industries. We also break down why eating sugar and processed wheat is so bad for you. We uncover what exactly is keeping so many people sick for so long, who's profiting from it, why he's speaking out, and what exactly the response has been from both food companies, pharmaceutical companies, and big government. I always enjoy talking to people who question the system and have inside knowledge and are willing to speak out when they deem that it is appropriate. Once you get done listening to this episode, jump onto Twitter and let us know what you think, what you liked, what you didn't like, what you agree with, and what you don't agree with. The feedback always helps us create better conversations and better topics. Here is my conversation with Callie Means. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang, I've got Callie here with me. Uh, you had this mega viral tweet thread, uh, basically just saying that all the incentives in the food, beverage, and pharmaceutical industry is completely off. Uh, people have been saying that for a long time, but your messaging specifically resonated because of your experience. What is going on? <laughs> so, so here's what I think happened. We're all getting sick, right? We're exponentially getting sicker, fatter, more depressed, more infertile. Uh, autoimmune conditions are up, allergies are up, childhood obesity is up. All these things are randomly up. And I think it's clear to everyone it's tied to food. And I think the the devil's bargain with the healthcare industry is that every institution in the healthcare industry, from pharma to your doctor to med schools, they profit from people being sick and they've been silent on why we're getting sick, which is food. So I think people implicitly feel that. I think there's clearly something off when you look at a kid's classroom and 50% of five-year-olds are overweight or obese now, according to the CDC. 50%. 50% during COVID of, of folks between five and 12. And, um, and just as a new parent, I know you're, you're a real, you know, you have a one-year-old too. It's just, uh, there's something very concerning, I, I think viscerally. And what I think this tweet tapped into is that now I'm working to change these instead of earlier in my career, I saw inside the room. So I, I was, you know, a good young conservative guy, worked in politics, worked on campaigns. Inevitably, uh, folks from the left and the right inevitably are across the table from special interests. You go into consulting. And I worked for both soda uh, companies and pharma companies. So I can go in a little bit what, of the playbook. One the soda companies, yeah. I think, is the funny part. Because when he, people hear that, it's like big soda, yeah. right? Like, what, what exactly does it mean to work with the soda companies? Yes, they work. I'll go exactly into the playbook. So I worked for uh, the American Beverage Association in 2011, 2012. Okay. And they all hide behind these front groups. And specifically what they were trying to do in 2011, 2012 is keep soda in food stamp spending. So food stamps are the number one nutritional program for lower income folks. 15% of Americans depend on it. $110 billion is spent on it. And the number one item purchased is soda. Really? 70% 
of all food stamps spending go to processed food, but 10% go to sugar water, diabetes water. And if you look at any scientific study on like what's really contributed to obesity and diabetes and this this chronic disease crisis we're in, it's this weaponized sugar in liquid form has really led to that. And that's 10% of all food stamp spending. So people were questioning this, obviously, it makes no sense. It's, it's, it's criminal public policy because we're giving our country, you know, obesity, diabetes, and then paying for that trillions of dollars down the road. So people were questioning that. And what Coke does is they get a bunch of consultants in the room and they have a playbook and the playbook revolves around how do we rig, how do we pay off, how do we weaponize institutions of trust? Okay, that's the pl- and it's not that complicated. But I watched as we put together a list of prominent civil rights groups, and it was very transactional. You go into the NAACP in this case, and there was reporting in the New York Times uh, in 2012, Coke paid millions of dollars under the American Beverage Association to the NAACP. And the conversations were shockingly transactional. It's parents are complaining and worried that their kids are drinking 100 times more sugar than they did 100 years ago. Uh, we need to label our opponents as racist and keep soda in food stamps spending. And that's exactly what the NAACP, the Hispanic Federation, other leading civil rights groups did. And what, um, what is their argument? Their argument is if yeah. you go after the food stamp programs, then you're racist? I think this is really important because it's it's not like evil conspiring, but it is like, you know, kind of a wink, wink. It's like, hey, you know, and it's very patronizing, actually. It's like, hey, these under, you know, lower income folks, they love their Coke. It's a treat. Let's not take that Coke away from them. You know, this is this is nanny state. It's ironic because they weaponize conservative language too, nanny state. But what is being questioned is the fact that government money is being paid for soda. It's actually in the opposite direction. But it's kind of that language. It's like, you know, we're trying to tell these lower income folks what to what to eat and drink. Let's not do that. You know, not debating what, whether it's good for those lower income folks to be having government subsidized diabetes water, uh, not acknowledging the point that a man in the United States who's at the lower uh, income bracket, the lowest income bracket, dies 15 years younger than a man at the upper income bracket. I mean, mm-hmm. that's entirely because of nutrition. Mm-hmm. And the communities are being decimated. 25% of children right now have prediabetes. And that's disproportionately impacting lower income communities of color. So, of course, this is a disastrous policy for um, the groups that are uh, professed to represent. But, um, but yeah, that's the type of language. It's a, we, we can't take away choice. So weaponizing race is, is, is just a key part of the playbook. Whenever you're trying to win a debate, it's how do we weaponize and call our opponents racist? That was in the playbook. And why is it controversial to take the position that the government shouldn't be buying non-nutritional food for anyone, forget income brackets, but like if we're going to spend government money, then is it a controversy to say, hey, it shouldn't be spent on things that are going to make people unhealthy, which will then create a draw on the healthcare system and create other problems down the road, which kind of just puts the government in this spiral of having to constantly fund for uh, the food and beverage that people consume, which then leads to them having to pay for their healthcare as well? This is obviously the bipartisan issue of our time. I mean, we're debating trivia right now as 25% of kids have prediabetes, as we talked about, 50% of American adults have prediabetes or diabetes, 93% of Americans have some biomarker of metabolic dysfunction. Now, what is that? What does that mean, metabolic dysfunction, diabetes? Literally, it means cells are malfunctioning. Diabetes is cellular dysregulation. 
Um, but all of us, almost all of us, are on some level of cellular dysregulation of metabolic dysfunction. And that means the American people, our bodies and brains, like are literally malfunctioning. And it, you know what, you tie it, and there's a lot of studies on this, right? But 20% of our cells are in our brain. Um, and now 25% of the American people are on a mental health medication. According to the CDC, during COVID, 25% of teenagers contemplated suicide. Obesity, autoimmune conditions, allergies, all these things, the, the underlying branch is, is cellular dysregulation tied to food. And as you mentioned, and as you said, we actually subsidize that, mm -hmm. not just with food stamp spending, the number one item it goes to, but uh, tens of billions of dollars of subsidies, uh, crop subsidies, 0.4% of subsidies in the United States for agriculture go to fruits and vegetables. They're considered specialty crops. 90% go to corn, which turns into high fructose corn syrup, and grains, which turn into processed grains. We take the fiber out, they're the basis of our diet now, and they turn into sugar. So we're subsidizing these things. And again, it's because the food companies, they understandably want to make the food more addictive when you load it with sugar, load it with processed grains, also inflammatory seed oils, which are subsidized. It becomes inflammatory, but also very addictive and cheap. Um, the criminal part is the handoff to pharma and healthcare. We would expect the NIH, we would expect Stanford and Harvard med schools to be waving the alarm about why people are sick. But the key thing I think most folks don't understand is that every institution in healthcare, they make money when there's interventions on sick people, mm -hmm. right? 95% of all healthcare spending is on sick people, is an intervention or a prescription. Mm -hmm. So everyone in that system is incentivized to make money when people are sick. And what's happened is there's been silence on why people are getting sick. So I've got a kind of tying this all together. So when I was working for 2011, 2012 on the food stamp issue, you know, again, Coke paid off the civil rights groups, think tanks, research institutions, they, they processed food, uh, gave 11 times more money than the NIH to nutritional research. So the, the debate was rigged. <laughs> but the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, medical schools, nowhere to be found, completely silent. But today, they're being very vocal because just this year, we now have approval and it's coming online, a new obesity drug intervention. Okay, Ozempic, semi-glutide, you might've been hearing about this. It's predicted to be the most successful pharmaceutical product in history. Um, so right after I would meet with the food companies, you know, another, the biggest spender in DC, the biggest spender on this stuff is pharmaceutical companies. And the key thing to understand is like, again, everyone in that room thinks they're, they, they, they justify and they're creating life-saving drugs, but nobody's asking why people are getting sick. They're profiting from people getting sick. So now tied to these policies, like the food stamp, like the subsidies we talked about, now, as we talked about, over 40% of teenagers and kids are obese or overweight. And this drug, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the association that credentials uh, and gives guidelines for all pediatricians in the country, said that every overweight or obese teenager should have a weekly injection of this new obesity cure. All right, so hold on a second. Yeah. The food companies are incentivized to sell various types of food and beverages that uh, obviously are addictive. Right. They may say they're not doing it, but obviously they're doing yeah. it. Um, what percentage of, let's say, Coke sales come from selling sugar water versus other types of products that they have. Do we know that answer? Coke, it's the vast majority. And then PepsiCo has a lot of big food arm, but Coke is, it's increasingly becoming, but it's it's the majority of their revenue. Okay. Yeah. 
And then the pharmaceutical companies are like, hey, we need sick people because that's ultimately who our customer base is, right? Pharmaceutical companies aren't looking at their market opportunity map and saying, okay, here's the healthy people, let's target them. They're saying, no, it's the sick people, that's who we need to target. But this idea of an obesity shot, right? a weekly shot that they supposedly want to give to, is it just young people or is it to anyone that has obesity? Obesity or overweight which is up, which is getting close to 80% of adults. So eight, uh, potentially up to 80% of adults who are obese or overweight, they want to give a weekly shot to, and what do they claim that the shot will do? Well, let's get into the playbook. So uh, what the pharma companies have done, what Novo Nordic, the parent company, has done, is they made 420,000, I helped orchestrate this, but but this is on the government websites. They gave 420,000 unique payments to obesity doctors in 2021 and absolutely flooded the zone on donations to the major uh, associations like the American Academy of Pediatrics. Also, they're the largest funder of pharma is the single largest funder of news. So what you had is a perfect storm. So a couple of weeks ago, you had a 60 Minutes special on obesity. The doctor, Dr. Fatima Stanford from Harvard, uh, on that special said that obesity is genetic. She literally said that your choices and lifestyle and what you eat and how much movement you have does not have a large impact on obesity. What? It's genetic. <laughs> obesity is a problem in the past 50 years. A Japanese person in the United States has three times higher obesity rate than a Japanese person in Japan. The This doctor from Harvard who has been funded tens of thousands of dollars in the past year by this drug company, said on 60 Minutes, which is funded by pharma, before and after this segment aired, there were pharma ads that obesity is genetic. The next week, this is not a joke. Is that nerve? This is like, not a joke. On, so what did the journalists say when they said It was completely like unquestioned. Just, just accepted like, it of course. It was completely unquestioned. The New York Times, the Daily Podcast, ran a very similar piece recently. Parents are listening to this who are suffering, and she is saying that obesity is a genetic condition and it has to be treated with pharmaceuticals, and it's an urgent imperative that parents don't really question or stigmatize what their kid is eating but need a pharmaceutical injection. Is this also part of the whole, like, um, uh, basically, if someone's fat, you have to be accepting of that. It goes into the whole, like, dad bod. It goes into the mannequins at the stores yeah. and trying to normalize it. And it's this idea that, like, if someone's fat, you can't say to them, yo, you should eat healthy, work out, sleep, and, like, generally take care of yourself and you won't be fat anymore. Like, that has now become somewhat taboo to talk about. If you go to any nutrition panel, any conference on nutrition, the, the buzzword is let's not stigmatize any food. Stigmatize? Let's not stigmatize. Let's not stigmatize any food. That no particular food is bad. It's how we're, you know, how we're eating it. Getting back to the food, and again, let's just let's just, again, it's 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 we're getting sick, and then there's profit from that. So so let's talk about that. The the uh, food pyramid, right, which has really led to the chronic disease crisis, I think the most deadly public policy document in American history, right, the document in the 90s that said we should eat more carbs, more sugar, less healthy fats, which which actually doesn't make you fat. Um, it sounds absolutely, great, though. Absolutely, you can trace the food pyramid, which we all know about, to, to uh, trillions of dollars of, of, of uh, budgetary loss and millions of lives cut short or lost. Mm -hmm. That study was directly funded by Harvard Research from the Sugar Council. They didn't even try to hide the name back then. The Sugar Council, which said sugar doesn't cause obesity and we need a high-carb diet. 
that went into the dietary guidelines. Today, as I said, the food companies absolutely have a stranglehold on nutritional research. There's tens of thousands of nutritional studies put out every single year. God knows what they say. I think it's actually pretty simple. And the foundational NIH uh, guidance, the millions of dollars funded by the NIH nutritional study, the Food Compass, uh, was also jointly funded by food companies and says that Lucky Charms are three times healthier than beef and that Honey Nut Cheerios are healthier than eggs and that Cheerios are as good as quinoa. And it says that orange juice should be highly encouraged for children, which is, again, just diabetes water, doesn't have the fiber, terrible. It says it should be encouraged uh, and, and kids can drink that every day. This is a foundational study that is being used actively right now, funded by the NIH, to influence childhood marketing and nutrition guidelines. So you've had this nutrition ecosystem totally dependent and funded by food companies saying that there's no bad foods. Mm -hmm. When Are yeah. there people inside of these research institutions, whether they're at universities or they are uh, kind of publicly funded things or even private uh, research laboratories, are they dumb? Are they just bought off and they're in on the the game, or, or is somehow are they told, hey, run a study this way, and it's like stacked uh, against them, and, right. and they're just you know kind of monkeys executing plans? Like like how is it that you have worked your entire career to be a researcher, a scientist, uh, a nutritionist, or whatever, and then you say with a straight face and put your name on a document that says that Lucky Charms are three times healthier than beef? So we all know the system's screwed and rigged, right? Mm -hmm. What I'm really trying to do, and I think is resonating, is use my experience to really paint the specifics. And I actually have a specific story on this. So my life's calling right now with my partner, Justin Mayer, is we have a company trying to change food incentives. But we are trying to call attention to specifics of the rigged system. So we are proud that we brought attention to this Lucky Charm study. It was released a year ago. Uh, but he wrote a piece on, on Mike Solana's Substack and, um, and, and a tweet I did went viral. Mike so, Solana is fantastic. He's the man. Yeah. He's the man. So he was pushing it. Pirate wires. Yeah. It's it's the best subscriber die. And, and it's driving and it's driving real uh change. So I'll explain yeah. to you how it's actually I, I believe pirate wires, I, I think it's actually un, unquestioned. It saved lives in this case. So the pirate wires article went viral. I, I did a tweet that went viral of that. Um Joe Rogan saw it. So mm -hmm. Joe Rogan posted about it. Um, Fox News, which is the only network that will cover uh, anti-pharma stories, which we can get into, uh, covered it nightly. Um, and there was a lot of pressure. Okay. What I've heard is that there was active efforts to have these labels that said Lucky Charms, cheer, you know, Honey Nut Cheers are great on literally packaging standardized throughout Africa and in the U.S., and the Rockefeller Foundation, other big funders of this of this study and the research and the kind of community, because of the pressure, actually stopped that effort to have these labels saying that these terrible foods are good because of that pressure. But which why, is great. Why is the Rockefeller uh, Foundation or any other foundation, mm -hmm. right, in, in uh, that is alleged to be involved in this stuff? Why would they want to get those labels on there? Just because they're investors in the food companies or something else? Well, let me let, so so let me let me get. I can get a little bit into the motivations uh, specifically. So with that attention, I was contacted by the lead author of the study, um, a, a guy named uh, Dariush, um, a, a doctor is his first name. And he was at Davos and called me 
uh, pretty upset. He said he's getting uh, hundreds of angry emails, to which I replied that 25% of kids have pre-diabetes right now because of rigged studies like this, and I understand why people are angry. And I'll just go through, and I, I dug into these questions with him, and I'll just tell you what he said. I said, you've been paid personal payments. So his studies to close, not, not just research funding, but personal payments from a manifold of processed food companies, as many nutrition researchers get. The study itself was funded by Danone and other processed food companies. Danone makes almond milk. The number one dairy item in this study, not Greek yogurt, grass-fed, it was chocolate almond milk. Chocolate almond milk was the number one rated dairy. And Danone, which is the chief funded study, was the main funder. You can't even make it up. I asked him point blank, did, does, when a group or company gives you millions of dollars, does he said, absolutely not. Do your personal payments influence your research? Absolutely not. I asked him specifics. He said oranges should be encouraged for children. He spent literally, it was comical, 15 minutes explaining why Lucky Charms are not only magically delicious, but also should be encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> What is his argument? I mean, let's just stay on that for a second. Yeah. What is his argument as I to why Lucky Charms uh, should be encouraged for kids? I, I, I wouldn't give my kid Lucky Charms if it was yeah, my yeah. choice, right? Obviously, right. kids kids right. want to eat stuff, right? And, well, they and get so, addicted. I mean, they're weaponized with sugar and processed yeah, grains. Yeah, and so to some degree, like you don't want to uh, not allow your kid to ever have sugar no matter what or, or whatever. But I think most parents are like, look, I want my kid to be happy, but I also want my kid to be healthy, right? And so... If I want my kid to be happy and healthy, I'm not going to feed them Lucky Charms every day. Maybe they get it every once in a while. It's kind of like a treat, ice cream, whatever, right? I, I don't think you want your kid to live like they're in like a, a prison. But at the same time, like, dude, how can you say that you should encourage kids to eat Lucky Charms every day? Yeah, I mean, cyber on the on the drug point. I, I agree. I'm not, I'm not. You can't be just a total zealot with your kids. But I think it is important that just because something's normalized doesn't mean it's very very wrong. Mm -hmm. I think doctors used to smoke in the '60s in their offices, and I do think actually sugar and the fact that it's so normalized for kids, we're going to look back on with shame. I, I really do believe that it's a highly addictive dopamine trigger. I think it's indistinguishable from many other drugs, and it is very dangerous. So I just, you know, as a new parent, I agree, you can't be a zealot, but like it is, I think, highly problematic that sugar is normalized. To the specific question, what he specifically said, and again, I am a tech pro, I'm not a medical, you know, professional, but, you know, again, I think I actually have a really good perspective on this because I saw early in my career unimpressive people rigging the system. And I will tell you, like, you have grain companies paying him. You have any, any reading of the literature or any just common sense, highly processed grains are an absolute disaster. The shift to highly processed grains, which take out the fiber, all the nutritional value to make the grain shelf safe, they don't do this as much in Europe. Mm -hmm. Like they, 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 they're, it's outlawed. There are these grains that are sprayed with Cheerios has so many um, pesticides on it. It needs to be differently formulated in Europe. Like, like these are very, very problematic. And he aggressively argued that these highly processed shel shelf stable frankenfoods, these grains, which are then fortified with the, with vitamins, you basically just like in a lab put some vitamins on, are just as good as a whole grain as quinoa or another whole grain, you know, that's natural, that humans are evolutionary created over hundreds of thousands of years to eat. He mm -hmm. said the fortified processed grains. And I, I, I just think that's just completely wrong. I, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's not that much. I don't think it's that much of a stretch to look at what's happening to the American people, to look at what's happening to health and trace it to food. And it's three things with food. It's highly processed grains, it's sugar, which we're eating a hundred times more of, 
and it's these industrial seed oils, which are highly inflammatory. These are all processed grains were created just 100 years ago. They're new inventions. Same with seed oils and added sugar is basically a new thing in 100 years. Everything, and doctors, I think any doctor would agree with this, the, 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 the underlying theme of disease is inflammation. Why are we chronically inflamed? Because we're eating as a foundation of our diet things that we are not made to eat. These are new processed mm -hmm. inventions. So he argued that that is not the case and that uh, grain, highly processed grains, Lucky Charms are okay, not even addressing the fact that that has a lot of added sugar too. And I don't, for the life of me, understand. The CDC says that a two-year-old, it's okay for 10% of their entire calorie intake to be sugar. Like, I do not understand why there is not just a unanimous, like, like beating at the table among the nutrition communities to say that it should be zero for a small infant. But like, this is a good example, yeah. right? So NIH, CDC, all these organizations, a lot of people uh, probably never even heard of these places before right. all right. of the uh, uh, COVID stuff. Um, and the whole experience there, I think a lot of people are like, ah, they seem to not really kind of understand all the details. There was a lot of mm -hmm. uh, waffling back and forth. So I think most of the American public or, or a, lot, a large percentage of them are kind of like, I don't know what's going on over there. But when I hear something like the CDC or the NIH is saying, yeah, 10% of an infant's diet should be sugar and that's right. okay. Literally the question that pops in my head is like, are these people dumb or are they being malicious or like what's going on? Okay. Hey guys, what's going on? I hope that you're enjoying this conversation, but I wanted to interrupt for a quick second and tell you about a brand new conference that I'm hosting on March 4th at the Miami Beach Convention Center. The event is called Lyceum Miami and tickets are completely free for anyone who wants to come. I'm bringing together many of the most popular guests from the podcast over the last couple of years. Some of the guest speakers that we've already announced are people like Vivek Ramaswamy from Strive Asset Management, or Delian and Mike Solana from Founders Fund, Chris Williamson from the Modern Wisdom Podcast, Cody Sanchez from Contrarian Thinking, and billionaire Christian Agermeyer, among many others. I've got a number of amazing surprise guests as well, some that you definitely will not expect, and others that come from walks of life that you will be scratching your head as to how I even got them to show up. But come check out Lyceum Miami on March 4th. The Lyceum was a public gym in Athens, Greece, where people used to come together, talk about ideas, and debate topics that were important to society. I want to meet people in person, in real life, once again, after three years of a hiatus from real life events. And so I'm hosting the event. And as I mentioned, anyone from anywhere can come to this event completely for free. All you need to do is go to lyceummiami.com and you'll be able to pick up a free general admission ticket. Make sure you claim your ticket in order to get in through the doors. Lyceum Miami is gonna be a great time. So come check it out. Come hang out with me, many of the popular guests from the podcast, and other like-minded individuals. Lyceum Miami, March 4th, Miami Beach Convention Center. I hope to see you there. All right, let's get back into this conversation. So I was in Texas recently. Greg Abbott has done some great things. He was bragging in a speech that the Texas Medical Center, which is now, the, I think, the largest hospital in the country, can be seen from space. These things, food, health, they've become jobs programs. They're industries, right? So it's just not questioned in the case of nutrition, that there's this multi-billion dollar ecosystem of nutrition research. There's people whose jobs it's at at these institutions like the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation to fund nutrition research, and they have a quota. 
there's this guy who runs the Tough Nutrition School and 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 is a chair of the the White House Conference on Nutrition. Like that is his life. That is his calling. If there's not nutrition research to do, he doesn't have anything to do. So and 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 in his head, he is he is thinking that he's doing right. I think he he he's bragging that he's done 500 peer-reviewed studies. I believe that the greatest lie the American people are being told is that what's happening is complicated. You know, that we need thousands of nutrition studies. If we cut seed oils, cut sugar, cut highly processed grains, we are eliminating diabetes, Alzheimer's, which is type 3 diabetes, um, heart disease, obesity. I mean, like, like it's actually not that complicated how you can actually structure public policy and societal change. But instead, the $4 trillion of the healthcare system and the $6 billion, excuse me, $4 trillion and then $6 trillion of the um, food system it's all incentivized to make things more complicated. So that's what's happening. And I think I think everyone can kind of tell themselves their stories, right? So this this doctor is getting to the kind of how it all ties, who went on 60 Minutes and said that obesity is genetic. She was appointed the next week to the FDA panel to set the nutrition guidelines for the United States in 2025. The panel at the FDA in 2020, 95% of the academics on that panel had direct conflicts of interest either to food or pharma companies. So you have this situation, right? You have to understand an NIH panel that decides research funding or an FDA panel that decides drug approvals, it's not government bureaucrats. They're appointing people from outside and those people are allowed to have conflicts. When I was working in this area in uh, 2011, 2012, opioids were a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a blue ribbon panel in 2012 from the NIH on opioid guidelines. And they picked the most prestigious person you could pick, the dean of Stanford Med School, who was a pain expert. He established the panel. The majority of that panel has had direct payments from opioid companies in the past several years. And the year that the dean of Stanford Med School was appointed to that panel, Pfizer, which is one of the largest opioid makers, gave him a $3 million donation. To him personally or to like To a group, to, to, the, to the school, mm-hmm. to the school, so fi- which, which is the currency for the school, mm-hmm. but made a direct, and there was a ton of opioid funding of, of opioid companies to Stanford. Mm-hmm. That panel recommended, which totally funded, you know, up and down, bought off by opioid companies, recommended looser opioid standards, which has led to devastation. 90% of overdoses from opioids today, illegal opioids, heroin and stuff, it started with the legal prescription that derived from that panel. Mm-hmm. Today, there's obesity panels with this woman who's paid directly. Also, let's understand their incentives. Pain doctors have an incentive to prescribe. That's what brings them patients. Obesity doctors now, this is a miracle for them a weekly injection that requires you to stand up for life. That's a lifetime patient. So there's huge financial conflicts and they're the people that are appointed to actually make the guidelines um, and, and both for food and for pharma. So again, it's like, it's like we kind of assume these institutions have our best interests at heart, but even the bureaucrats that are at the institutions, I mean, no greater example than Scott Gottlieb, who is the FDA director Right, and immediately then went to Pfizer to the board, getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's this constant revolving door. Um, but yeah, as a, as a as a consultant for these companies, it's not that complicated. You're creating lists 
of the people that could potentially be appointed to these panels and you're donating either direct payments, which again, $30 million from the obesity maker in 2021, we don't know through 2022, and then billions of dollars of research funding guiding where research goes. So I think that enables, and that's really to me, the true brilliance you could say of the system is that it takes some of the smartest and frankly most dedicated people, doctors, mm -hmm. nutrition researchers, you know, scientists to try and discover new therapeutics. Every one of them feels like they're doing the right thing. They're saving a patient. They're creating a pharmaceutical. Nobody's asking why heart disease is exploding, why diabetes, why so many people are getting sick. There's zero incentive for anyone to ask that question because the party's going and everyone feels like a hero mm -hmm. that they're saving folks and nobody's calling out and it's actually actively stigmatized to talk about root causes like uh, diet. My, my sister, Casey Means, the founder of Levels, um, you know, she, she was top of her class Stanford Med School. At the graduation for, you know, when doctors finish med school, they choose between 42 subspecialties. They break the body into 42 areas. She focused, was focusing her career on one square millimeter on the head and neck. She was a head and neck surgeon. And when she tried to suggest nutritional interventions, her boss at the time said, don't be a pussy. And that is very much what the culture is. And it's in the invisible hand, right? It, mm -hmm. it, it's let's be warriors and serve the people that are getting sick. But nobody is asking why folks are getting sick. Mm -hmm. Is there a problem if we just made a rule? I don't know who would make yeah. the rule, yeah. but somehow there was a rule made that said uh, you can't conduct nutritional research that then is used to form public policy or, uh, frankly, be published to public citizens if you are taking direct payments from these food companies. Like if we, you know, I've always thought politicians as an example. Sure. When politicians get uh, elected, I have seen uh, people suggest that they should have to wear uh, like F1 or NASCAR jackets with all the people who put them there, right? Mm -hmm. Just wear the logos of the different companies. 100%. But I said, look, it'd be hilarious. I get it, right. right? The internet loves that stuff. But actually what probably would, would be impactful is if you get elected, you are not allowed to oversee legislation for industries that put you in office. So just you're not, if the pharma industry puts you in office, you can't weigh in on pharma issues. And what, my guess is what would happen is immediately there would be a lot less donating going on. And so same thing here is if we just said, look, you can't conduct nutritional research if you're being funded by any of these companies that are pushing any sort of food or beverage from a dietary standpoint. One, would there be anybody left to actually do research? And two, could we make a system work in that sense? I mean, we're in a pickle here because healthcare is the largest and fastest growing industry in the United States. It's a behemoth. Like I said, with the governor of Texas, it's this jobs program. And in the majority of US states, the largest employer is a hospital system. Uh, so think about what that means for incentives for the various lawmakers. Unwinding that is existential. We're gonna go bankrupt with healthcare costs. They're just growing at an increasing rate. Our eyes kind of gloss over when we talk about healthcare costs. It's, it's, it's stated so much, but it's 20% of GDP growing at an increasing rate faster than any other industry. It's going, and it's not slowing down. It's going to be 40% of GDP in 15 years, and we're all getting sack, uh, sicker, fatter, more depressed, more infertile. Literally, like male sperm count has plummeted. Mm -hmm. PCOS, the leading cause of female infertility, is skyrocketing. Like, there's something really bad happening. 
and it's only increasing, but it's this jobs program. So unwinding that, unwinding the nutrition research industrial complex, the pharma industrial complex, the hospital industrial complex. I mean, obviously in every city in the country, the biggest, most gleaming, you know, building is a hospital. That's gonna take, but but we have to do it. But yeah, so so as far as public policies, I mean, I think the first thing we need to do is understand these incentives. I think the key to being an empowered patient is just understanding them. And I do think there's going to be a bottoms up revolution because the math actually demands it. Like, and I, I think it's being led by parents who are seeing what's happening to kids. So I think understanding this, I'm a free market guy. Like I think Coke pharma companies should be able to exist, but we should definitely talk about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And if I was, if I had a billion dollars, I would I, kind of similar to what you said, maybe, maybe a little bit more of a free market. So I, I would form a pack and counteract to, to any politician all of their pharma and food funding i would i would replace that and guarantee that they'll be replaced that funding for life we need to somehow there's not a pack for diabetic kids right mm -hmm. there, there's a there, there's a lot of money for pharma there's a lot of money for food so there needs to be a counterbalance for politicians uh, that's on the side of diabetic kids. And, and again, if I had billions of dollars, I think that would actually be the highest leverage thing you could possibly do. Because once you change, it's all about incentives, right? It, it, it's, it's all these politicians, everyone, they, they all have plausible deniability. Mm -hmm. They all have plausible, because they can all say, you know, oh, I'm doing a nutrition study. Um, if I had a button I could press, it would eliminate all nutritional research in the United States. The, the, the thing that we are doing, the thing that, you know, the, these academics, I don't think the folk, the guy I talked to um, who's, a lead research in the country even understands this. You have unimpressive PR executives in Washington, D.C. creating a strategy of donations to nutrition research. We don't even care what the nutrition research says. The fact that there are thousands of studies is the goal. It's 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 confusion. It's obfuscation, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, it's changing the incentives of uh, of the politicians. The other thing I would do uh, getting, getting to the medical school is a crazy statistic is that today... 80% of medical schools in the United States do not require one nutrition class. Like fundamentally, like doctors in the United States are not trained why people get sick. My sister who, who as I said, left medicine and started a metabolic health company, her out-of-body experience was five years into residency when she was doing her third surgery of the day, looking down at a passed out patient, cutting open their sinuses to relieve um, inflammation in the sinuses. She had this out-of-body experience where that patient had been with her under her knife like six months before, and she had no idea why they had inflammation. She had literally done hundreds of sinusitis surgeries and never learned why the inflammation even occurred. A diabetes doctor couldn't, most likely from Harvard, I've talked to them, can't even explain the underlying dynamics of what happens with diabetes, literally. Like they are just, they're, it's pharmacology. It's what to prescribe. And... Um, yeah, the incentives on the med school is if I had a billion dollars too, I, you know, you'd attack the politicians, but more than 50% of medical school funding somehow touches pharma, the research, the grants, it, it, you know, every med school, there should be some kind of fund mm -hmm. where it's basically clean money because yeah. the money dictates the incentives, which is pharmacology. I saw a yeah. working paper, so I don't know how far yeah. through the research process uh, they are, and right. I'm not a scientist, um, but uh, I was reading it. I can't remember if it was like on MBER or uh, maybe it was BLS or you know one, mm. one of these like government organizations. Uh, they have kind of all their working papers. Right. I just go and, and check out what's on there. And there was a study that was trying to uh, really zero in on what is the impact of kids eating sugar when they're younger. But the impact was not so much on uh, their health. Mm. It was on literacy 
on wealth, on all of these other things in in their uh, life. And what was interesting to me was health is one important piece. But when you say to someone, uh, are you healthy or are you not? A lot of people, I think, would say like, yeah, I'm healthy, right? Or yeah, I, and then they tell you something that they do that is generally healthy. I go for a walk every day, right? But they don't think about it in terms of data. They don't think of like, are you actually overweight? Are you, um, you know, doing certain things? Are you eating correctly? All that. Now, if you tell a parent, do this and your kid will be healthy, do this and your kid won't be healthy, I actually don't know how many parents even understand what healthy is, Mm -hmm. right? But if you say to a parent, if you give your kid sugar, they will be poor, which is essentially what this study was showing was that there was a very material drop in uh, the lifetime earnings of a kid who was given sugar at a younger age. Uh, I do think parents listen to that. I do think that parents want what's best for their kid, but they don't understand so much what health is or nutrition in terms of they're probably not that healthy or that nutritious themselves. And so instead, if you can put it into terms of education or money, all of a sudden they're like, wait, wait a second. You're telling me that every time I give my kids sugar, it's making them dumber and and they're going to make less money over their lifetime. Do you think that would actually change it? This is what's, this is what's so criminal. Why I'm actually optimistic and why it's kind of dispiriting what's happening right now. People, first off, want to be healthy. They don't want their kids. You know, there's this whole thing, oh, people are going to be lazy. No, 80% of Americans don't want to be overweight or obese, and they don't want their kids to. So I looked it up. December 2022, this study was published. The title, uh, it's on the NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, and it says, The Sweet Life, The Long-Term Effects of a Sugar-Rich Early Childhood. And they claim in um, uh, kind of the abstract, we show that sugar-rich diet early in life has large adverse effects on the health and economic well-being of adults more than 50 years later. Excessive sugar intake early in life led to higher prevalence of chronic inflammation, Mm -hmm. which you've been talking about, diabetes, elevated cholesterol and arthritis. It also decreased post-secondary schooling, having a skilled occupation, and accumulating above median wealth, which feels like that sec- that last sentence is actually what's going to hammer home to parents. If you say that having too much sugar is going to decrease post-secondary schooling, having a skilled occupation, and also decrease the ability to accumulate above median wealth, all of a sudden parents are like, oh, well, I never heard sugar being mentioned in those terms. This is what's so depressing for right now, but why I'm optimistic. People listen to medical elites, right? When the Surgeon General, shamefully late, just as we're late on food, but shamefully late, but in the 80s said that smoking's bad, smoking plummeted, right? Lives were saved. When, as we talked about, the food pyramid said to eat more carbs and sugar, that's what people did. It increased 20% of our diet. People don't want to be sick. They don't want their kids to be sick. And what's happening, and I, I, think, I think what's tragically happened is these health issues have become normalized. I think another huge lie in medicine is that our friends, right, people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s are healthy. We've normalized chronic fatigue. We've normalized depression. We've normalized anxiety. We've normalized obesity. We've normalized, like you literally, like my sister says, she would talk to a, a, a patient who's on five different medications, you know, and, and doctors say, oh, you're healthy. We, we've normalized <laughs> all of, you know, the, I think there's 17 prescriptions filled per American per year, you know, which obviously there's some power users there. But, but, but people don't want to be unhealthy or watch their kids be obese, but they're really actually following the guidelines and the incentives, 
right? The incentives are we heavily subsidize crappy food and then healthcare kicks in later. And we have leading academics from Harvard saying that obesity is not a big deal. So, so I, if I, we change it, yeah. So I have two other things yeah. on, on this specifically. Um, I uh, was in a rural uh, North Carolina town mm -hmm. um, probably two, three years ago, and uh, I was driving with my wife, and uh, in this town, there's about three stoplights, maybe four stoplights. So it's not a one-stoplight mm -hmm. town, but it's not a, a city or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And on the main strip, we happened to be at the furthest end, and I just said, look up, look around. And we looked straight down. And it was every fast food chain you could think of. There was Wendy's and McDonald's and there was Arby's and there was uh, Sheets and there was, you know, you just go down the line. Literally, it was all of them. And I said to her, I said, right now, if we wanted to get a healthy meal in this town, where would we go outside of going to the grocery store, knowing what to buy and then going home and cooking it? And the conclusion we came to is like, how much of the nutrition problem in America is actually a poverty problem. It is a lack of access problem. And not just, uh, I don't have money to buy food, but hey, I gotta work three jobs to actually have enough money to live, and therefore, I'm so tired when I get home, I don't cook healthy food, so you know what, McDonald's is pretty cheap, and let me go grab a $1 burger and you know stuff that in my mouth before I go to sleep and do it all over again tomorrow. I, I think we need to be really clear. It's a slight variation on what you just said. We have a rigged system problem. So this idea that there's not enough money to buy healthy food, you know, is just erroneous, right? Every single thing you saw on that street, this processed food diet, it is that is what's bankrupting our country. Like like a person with type two diabetes who's on uh, Medicaid, who's is lower income, you know, thirty five, they're costing the system millions of dollars. You know, ninety nine percent of people with diabetes have comorbidities, mm -hmm. and it's the underlying foundation of disease. So, 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 what we're doing, right? When I see that that row of restaurants, what I'm seeing is food stamp spending, which is a big, you know, source of the. It's one hundred and ten billion dollars, as we talked about. It's subsidized to go to those things, right? I see grain subsidies and all these subsidies for that toxic food when there's no subsidies for vegetables, right? I see a medical system that's not speaking out about that. That our cells are completely under assault, right? A medical system that actually wants all that food to be eaten, right? You always have the hospitals next to all those fast food restaurants and fast food served within hospitals because they're profiting. So I, you know, that's because a lawmaker and various people who represent these industries actually are representing people where the largest jobs are the food and the pharma. So I see a rigged system, right? I see folks in those cities or when you go to a public space and see so many people clearly unhealthy, you know, I actually see people trying, but there's the weight of these incentives just totally and utterly mm -hmm. against them. One of the data points um, that I recently uncovered is I went through and I was trying to break down the federal government spending, right? Yeah. So with the debt limit debate sure. and just kind of, hey, where the hell are these trillions right. of dollars going? And uh, I want to read you something mm -hmm. that uh, I pulled out of that research where I said, when we look at spending by agency, it is shocking to see spending by the Department of Health and Human Services is double the Department of Defense, military spending, and the Department of Homeland Security combined. Additionally, we spend double the amount on Social Security compared to the Department of Education. Now, when you unpack what is in the Department of Health and Human Services, there's a whole bunch of stuff, right? It's not just this type of stuff. 
But what you see is that this mandatory spending by the government, which is literally by law, it is mandated that they spend, is now making up 60% of all government spending. And it's not just health and human services. It's not just Department of Education or whatever. But what you're starting to see is that actually government spending more and more is becoming the safety net. Mm. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these different programs. And what I wonder is if you were able to solve for, let's say, anyone under the age of 20 today. And you're able to say, you know what? We can wave a magic wand. Everyone is going to start eating healthy. They're going to start exercising, kind of doing all the right things. Food companies, you're going to stay out of this. And we're going to actually give these people super nutrient-dense food that they are going to stay committed and disciplined. They're going to eat this stuff. What would be the impact 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now in the difference in the amount of money the government would have to spend to take care of these people or healthcare companies or pharmaceutical companies would have to actually spend to be able to make sure that these people live anywhere near a normal life compared to if we allow them to keep eating what they're eating now. It's got to be a massive this, number. This is radical, right? 85% of healthcare costs go to preventable chronic conditions. You know, and again, everyone should do their own research for this, but it, but it, and it sounds hyperbolic, but eight of the 10 killers of Americans, leading killers, are directly tied to food, right? Heart disease, if you had that simple public policy pop of, I would call it, thinking about our precious human capital, thinking about the cells of a child, and working to incentivize the most important lever on those cells, which is the one ton of I call genetic information that they eat, which is now just totally processed inflammatory crap. You're like, how do we actually, like as a public policy matter, like on the front end, try to get a human to eat fuel that's nourishing, that helps you, right? That doesn't like lead to inflammation and prediabetes, which is highly tied to depression and other mental health issues. A book just came out called brain energy, which actually very convincingly ties most brain disorders to metabolic issues, to food. Mm -hmm. It's totally tied. What would that do? Think about the impact of human capital. I mean, it's just very simple. Our society is humans, right? We are feeding ourselves, right? Absolute crap as fuel. It's showing itself in the metabolic dysfunction numbers we've said. So we have every member of society going through life, right, with literally malfunctioning cells that's leading to exploding healthcare costs. I would, I would just argue declining happiness. Yeah. And, and then what would it do? So what your policy would do, and it, it's, it's literally like my whole argument, we've got to engineer all health, all food policy to get back to basics, to, to feed people good food, which would dramatically lower healthcare costs and curtail the eight of the 10 leading killers of Americans, it would curtail depression, and it would be the most gasoline you could pour on human capital of America. I mean, when, when, a, when a person is overweight, that's visible cellular dysfunction. It's literally the glucose being overloaded in the cell and the glucose turns into fat because it has nowhere else to go. It's visibly like-, like Dude, we don't use one. science. Don't use science. Come on. <laughs> yeah, we, what are you talking about? Like literally, it's okay. It's genetic. Uh, we have- <laughs> <laughs> We have visible. I mean, that's what we're fucking talking about, though, right? Is literally like you immediately to describe obesity, you just went to a scientific understanding of how glucose can overwhelm a cell and literally create fat that is end, uh, ends up on a human body. The, the, and somebody else is saying like, no, dude, it has nothing to do with what they're putting in their body. It just has to do with their genetics and there's nothing they could do about well, it. Well, the criminal thing to me, going back to you know people under 20, the criminal thing to me is like, actually, 
it's a to me a welcome warning sign. We need to look at symptoms as gifts. Um, if a if a child is obese, actually, thank God, we can actually see that their cells are having issues. You know, the CDC recently reported as well, 15% of teenagers have fatty liver disease. This is something only seen in alcoholics. A lot of the times that's in thin people. You know, the, the actually your fat cells, we don't need to get too into the science, can be insulin resistant and you actually have trouble growing fat. They, the, the excess glucose can be stored other places. It can be stored, you know, in the brain and cause dysfunction of the brain. It can be stored in the liver. So 15% of kids having a disease right now that used to be only reserved for elderly alcoholics, right? That's a problem. So this, just getting a little bit into this and why your policy is so important and really thinking about cells, thinking about food. Right now, we've siloed everything, okay? And, I, and my mom's my big inspiration. So, so I was born 12 pounds, which is a sign right there that the mom has some metabolic dysfunction. If you're born massively overweight, the mom probably has some kind of gestational diabetes. It's, it's funny you say yeah. this because I recently read this book. It's called uh, Countdown, yeah. How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering mm -hmm. Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. It's written by uh, Shauna Swan. And this is one of the things that she talks about is that uh, you actually start to have an impact on your child when the child is in the mother's in utero, room yeah. in terms not just of alcohol and mm -hmm. things that, you know, smoking or whatever sure. that, that people uh, generally know, but literally if you are drinking Coke, if you are eating a bunch of sugary foods, if you're eating, you know, poorly, like your kid is getting a negative impact from your decisions. We're passing on metabolic dysfunction in utero. So the fact that I was born overweight showed that my mom and me actually were born with metabolic dysfunction, okay? And that was hand-waved by the medical system. Oh, that's very normal, gestational diabetes, take this pill. Then a couple years later, my mom had high cholesterol. Oh, this is a rite of passage for women in their 40s. Uh, here's a statin, you know, no problem. Then several years later, she has high fasting glucose. Oh, here's some metformin. Um, that's a drug, one of the most prescribed drugs in the countries. This is a rite of passage for people your age. You know, very normal, right? Right. Getting a statin as a man, that's just that's just normal. It's like, okay, on your way. No flag raised. High blood pressure. You know, she's on a number of medications going into her 70s like anyone. Then thinks she's perfectly healthy, never had any warning signs to a doctor, and then feels a pain in her chest, goes in, gets a scan, learns she has stage four pancreatic cancer and dies 13 days later and digging into pancreatic cancer highly tied to metabolic dysfunction and prediabetes which she had you know we can link lung cancer to smoking we can just as easily link many other forms of cancer to food as i mentioned alzheimer's kidney disease covid deaths obviously diabetes and heart disease almost everything you can causally link to the food and what's tragic about the story, and I think it's very relevant to every American, is these little steps along the way are seen as siloed, here's a drug. I actually, my heart goes out to many of our friends, right? And, and a lot of women right now struggling with PCOS. PCOS literally, like, like it's not like a, like a link you're pulling out. It is literally metabolic dysfunction. Like, like, like it is on the span of diabetes. It, it's the same thing. And there's almost no women I know who are struggling with PCOS or being told, not that that's just something you should take an estrogen pill for or get a procedure for, but that's a blaring warning sign that unless you start having curiosity about the interconnections in your body and the interconnections of your cells and disease, that if you don't get that under control, 
that you're going to have continued results of metabolic dysfunction, probably leading to an early death. And again, there's profitable, it's been profitable to silo health. That has been the biggest disaster in health, seeing things in silos, seeing things with a different pill to treat instead of having curiosity, which we've been robbed of, of the interconnectivity of disease. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the, that's the mission case in Iran is like, if we can have as a matter of public policy, just be curious about what's the underpinning of why we're getting sick, which inevitably leads to shifting the $4 trillion we spend in healthcare more to subsidizing nutritious food, quite frankly. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's, it's literally that. Like, that's where we need to move policy towards. I see it with my daughter, yeah. right, is um, I don't think I understood how unhealthy so many of the baby foods were. They're, they're just packed with sugar. The I mean, three ingredients I mentioned, yeah. It's literally nuts. And, and um, I do think that there's like this like luxury of time where if you have time to make whole foods for a child, then uh, you can obviously help them eat nutrition uh, at a, a higher dense uh, nutrition level. But what ends up making me think about is like when your kid goes to school, they're feeding them all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Inside of a cafeteria or whatever. And then also you start asking yourself, is it, are we at a point as a society where there's a trade-off between health and convenience, right? Or can there actually be a convenient, quick solution to food, whether you're an adult or a child, and it be healthy? And what it seems like the food companies have done is they said, that's not the trade-off we're willing to right. actually try to achieve. What we are going to do is we are going to try to drive convenience and profit. And that ends up being a major problem. Here's my theory of change. The system is screwed. I actually think that's an empowering message. So what the first step is, is a bottoms up revolution. So parents, right, you, you buy like regulation. I got it. I think we all get it. a sheet from the American Academy of Pediatrics about childhood diet. And the first thing on there is processed grains. It's like, give your, give your kids little puffs. The American Academy of Pediatrics is paid by Coke. When I was working for Coke, they paid the American Academy of Pediatrics millions of dollars, and the American Academy of Pediatrics had Coke's logo on its website. Okay? So just understanding that dynamic, my message is this. As a parent, first principles, you should have the courage to ask questions. Think about what a child ate 10,000 years ago. Were they eating little processed grains? No, they were chewing on stuff. They were chewing on natural food. That is where this needs to start. And I do think there's a revolution happening with parents. So we've got to like resist, frankly, I'll just say it, what our pediatrician's saying and what a lot of the medical establishment's saying. Then we get to more of a public policy. The bottom's up, but then we get to the public policy. And I believe that this idea of convenience and this idea of, oh, well, you know, this this said a lot, right? This was said by the, the nutrition researcher. Very, I find it kind of patronizing when he said this. The poor people are busy. You know, mm -hmm. they, 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 there's not enough options for them. That's like kneecapping someone and then saying, they can't run. You know, we, we've kneecapped everyone. The incentives are what they, they've created the system. And it's very inconvenient right now. 25% of uh, teenagers contemplating suicide, 45% being obese or overweight. That's leading to massive inconvenience. The, the entire worldview of these kids with their cellular dysfunction is being massively degraded. 25% of American adults being on a mental health, health medication. Like, 
That's a big warning. So there's a lot of inconvenient things happening here. Those so. are small numbers compared to 85% of all Americans being on a uh, obesity or overweight weekly injection. Though. Well, that's why they're saying it's going to be the, uh, the, the best-selling drug ever. And, and what do they claim that's going to do? So we can get into the mechanics of Ozempic. And this actually touches, I think, on, on the dynamics we were just talking about on siloing. So let's just back up and then we'll get into Ozempic. Chronic cure treatments. Every chronic cure treatment is correlated with more of the disease it's trying to treat. The more stands we prescribe, the more heart disease goes up. The more metformin we prescribe, the more diabetes goes up. The more SSRIs, as again, the most prescribed in the country right now, the more depression and suicide go up. The, I guarantee you that the more Ozempic we prescribe, the more obesity is going up. Why is that? It's because these are not siloed things, right? They're actually moral hazards. You literally, the guidance from the American Diabetes Association until 2018 was that if you take diabetes medic medication as a diabetic, you do not need to worry about what you're eating. You can continue to eat whatever you want as a diabetic. The guidance on Ozempic is the same thing. But let's think about this. You're taking your insulin, you're taking your Ozempic. Maybe your fasting glucose levels are going down. Maybe your weight is going down because what it does is it messes with your metabolism, your gut, and makes you less hungry. If you're still feeding yourself with inflammatory toxic food, if you're you know feeding horrible gas into the engine, even if it's a little bit less, you're still your body, the fundamental genetic information, the the, uh, the information that you're putting into your body is bad, is dirty. It's poison. It's poison. You're still, so 30% so less poison. Again, obesity, the lie is that obesity is the disease in and of itself. Obesity is the warning sign mm -hmm. of the underlying issues. So if you're putting 30% less into your body, but, the, but think about what that's gonna do to 40, those 45% of kids. Think about the message that sends when 60 minutes, the New York Times is saying, okay, this is good, it's genetic, then the kid loses a little bit of weight, but is still eating terrible food. Do you think that's going to end well, right? Mm -hmm. Do you like, like, that's why, right, from the 1960s as it is today, the 1960s, there weren't chronic disease treatments. It was all acute, all medical miracles, right? It was emergency surgical procedures for childbirth, for an appendicitis, for a, a, you know imminent that you're going to die of a heart attack, uh, antibiotics, pills that you went off once you were cured. Until 1960, there was not a chronic treatment. There, the birth control was the first one. Now it's 95% of spending because it's profitable. It's recurring revenue, right? But in the age of chronic treatments where costs have been skyrocketing, right, um, we've actually been declining life expectancy. So for the most sustained period, well before COVID, it's for the past six years, life expectancy in America has been going down. That's the longest and most sustained period since 1860, right? This is unprecedented. So in all these cures, life expectancy is going down. So that is the problem with the mm -hmm. Zipic number one. Number two is the opportunity cost, right? They are pushing, of course, for government subsidized Medicare, Medicaid, and various other programs, as you said, the HSH budget, for spending, because this is such a horrible disease that it's an isolated, as they're telling us. Just imagine, blue sky, those hundreds of billions of dollars that they're predicting of government money that's going to go to this drug. Just imagine, blue sky, what you could do with that money. Imagine that you're an alien that comes down to Earth and looks at what's happening. Everyone's fat. Everyone's sick with diseases that are obviously manifestly tied to food, right? And imagine that alien was smart and you gave that alien $4 trillion. They would never say 
to continue trying to get everyone sick and then try to superficially drug the problem. That's not what mm -hmm. anyone, this is not obvious what we have. It's totally actually crazy. If an alien came down to earth and had four, they'd subsidize food. They'd invest in regenerative agriculture. They would invest in programs to teach kids meditation, you know, to get control of their brains, you know, and understand the trauma that that's being caused. They would invest, you know, in, they would think about a child's cells. When you see this all playing yeah. out, can we change the existing system or do we have to build a new one? One of the things in like the Bitcoin world, right, is like you're not going to be able to change the Fed. You're not going to be able to change the legacy financial system. We got to build a new one from scratch. Competition. Don't try to tear down what they have. Just outcompete them in the market. What do you think is the, uh, kind of the solution here? Do we have to go build all new food companies that are healthier that can compete eventually yeah, yeah. with Coca-Cola or what? Yeah, I think, I think the math, again, demands that there's going to be rapid change. So my investment kind of spent on this is that by definition, something unsustainable has to change eventually. And I do think in the US, we eventually get there. We get there late, but we we are having a robust debate. There's a lot of discussions on podcasts from Joe Rogan on down, really talking about essentially these core issues. So I, I think from an investment perspective, you have to ask, uh, is the company, is a new company incrementally helping or augmenting the existing system? Are they putting a millennial pink packaging on Viagra? or making a better UX for electronic medical records for the existing system. Like that's where a lot of money's going, right? And I think my spin would be fundamentally, if we believe something unsustainable has to change eventually, there's literally only one way it's gonna change. It has to be trillions of dollars shifting from band-aids once people get sick to things that actually keep people healthy. Like we actually have to change policy eventually to keep Americans healthy. Because the fact that we're getting so sick is making us an uncompetitive country and it's gonna bankrupt the country. It li like literally, it will bankrupt the country. So how do you, it's not gonna be more drugs. We're actually told by many leaders that the problem is access, that literally the problem with healthcare is not enough people have access to enough drugs. That's of course bullshit. We have to eventually, so I think there's actually investment philosophies and I think it's why like levels, giving people more data, the biowearable revolution. I think that's an example that in 10 years, we're gonna basically have what Theranos said they were gonna do, which is actually a good idea, have a full MRI on what's going on in our body and we're not gonna have to go to the doctors. Mm -hmm. We're like literally in most, in many states right now, a patient isn't legally allowed to have their medical information. They, they, we have a total silo of what's going on in our body. We know nothing, that's gonna change. Um, you know, I think there is a market demand and more education around food, but, you know, food companies that are trying to be healthy are really at a disadvantage because there's just hundreds of billions of dollars of various subsidies going on healthy food. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I think we're slowly talking about this, but I think, I think the, the headwinds are going to happen. And again, it's the bottom up. It, it, it's podcasts. There's millions of books being sold, uh, millions of people buying biowearables. What are, what are the best books you think for people to read if they're interested in this stuff? Yeah. And, and again, what I'm trying to do, and if, if one person listens to this, it's not getting the answers in this podcast. It's a journey of curiosity mm -hmm. for the interconnections um, and, and you know just, just awe and wonder for what's going on in our bodies. I think that's the core. Mark Hyman, um, he's an investor advisor. Our company, we're so fortunate, and, um, and that really got me started. So Food Fix is an incredible systemic overview of the dynamics. Uh, a, a doctor named Robert Lustig, uh, two books, Metabolical and Hacking of the American Mind, had a profound impact on me. Mm -hmm. um, those are two places I'd start, and then you can really go down the rabbit hole. 
Um, you know, I think, you know, every podcast are talking about and Huberman. I, I think a lot of people are listening to him, but goes into this very well. Mark Hyman has a podcast. I honestly think Joe Rogan is one of the vanguards of medicine and, and the scientific method. He's actually having and scrolling through his podcast, ha having a lot of doctors on talking about metabolic health and actually pursuing the scientific method of having different views on and asking questions the number one target of the medical system from NIH and medical schools trying to shut him down, having people talking about how food, exercise, and looking at the sun, maybe we should do a little bit more and incentivize that. So um, I just think going down the rabbit hole and being able to ask questions for you and your kids is very important, and, and those authors are a good place to start. What is like your aspiration in terms of what are you guys trying to do with this company that you've referenced? Uh, what is kind of the goal of the business, and like what do you think your contribution to kind of making this changes? Yeah, the existential challenge um, that we asked, I could give you a little bit of the story if, if that's okay. Of but course. after my mom kind of abruptly died, um, and uh, at the same time, you know, several years before my sister leaving the medical system, which was a big family event. I mean, she was the pride of the family in the medical system, abruptly quit because she was so horrified with what she saw, started levels. Um, and I had, had sold uh, our previous e-commerce company, thinking about what I want to do. And, and the core idea I, I just can't get out of my mind and what I'm devoting my life to is changing the incentives. The problem is that every level of health is incentivized for people to be sick. Mm -hmm. And that's the invisible hand creating our system. We're all getting sicker for longer periods of time, which is what makes the system money. Mm -hmm. So a partner, Justin Maris and I bonded over that question and we asked, how can we use existing entities to change incentives? And we really got into this idea of, of food prescriptions. Uh, is there a way actually to make food, to make exercise tax-free? And we actually found a way. So Mark Hyman and other functional medicine doctors on a micro level at clinics and stuff actually are writing food prescriptions and exercise prescriptions for patients with metabolic issues that are not being handled well by the medical system. And if you have a note from a doctor, you can actually use HSA, FSA money these pre-tax accounts that are very under-optimized to buy food and exercise. You need a doctor's note. The HSA, FSA accounts, most people, most of your listeners probably have access to them. Justin, me, a lot of people never use them. They kind of, because it's like, oh, it's money, the user lose it for when you're sick. We're all sick. This is the key. We all should be aggressively, we all have metabolic dysfunction brewing within us. And it's totally within the spirit and letter of regulations what is, a, what is a food uh, prescription and exercise prescription? Yeah, so 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 our implementation is we're partnering with exercise companies, food companies. You can go on our website, truemed.com. We're in a payment integration. So just like a firm, you'll see it right when you're buying your supplements, when you're buying your eight sleep. Um, for instance, we're, we're, they're investors and we're, we're chatting with them, but products like that, you'll be able to click on that and answer a couple asynchronous health questions. And if you qualify, if you're trying to prevent or reverse a condition, we can approve you right away and you can actually use your HSA, FSA card, your HSA, FSA funds right in the payment flow. Mm -hmm. And that's a 30, 40% savings. You save your entire income tax. I will put an eight sleep, which improves your you know, sleep and there's data on this. I would put broccoli. I would put exercise. I would put that against any pharmaceutical treatment. And there's studies on this that we have backing us up. So we, through the payment flow, integrating with these merchants, which we're very rigorous to have a clinical team improving, um, can enable that spinning. So I've never used my HSA, uh, FSA, but this past year, our family did 7,200 bucks. 
Um, and we're going to be able to use that on food and exercise and things that keep our family healthy. And so what does the individual contribute into it? And it's basically kind of pre-taxed uh, dollars go into these accounts? Yes, the, it's through work? your HR platform. It, the, the majority of Americans have access is when you're kind of clicking through your open enrollment. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where like, do you want to contribute? And it, most people just ignore it. There's $140 billion sitting in the accounts right now. You about 30, 40% of your listeners probably have money in there. Um, but it's at open enrollment. So you click, you contribute up to $7,200 for a family, and that pulls directly from your paycheck. Um, mm-hmm. Getting into the weeds here, it's actually kind of cool. It's like a tax-free loan because it, you get that money up front on January 1st, and it um, it pulls over the whole course of the year. So it's like a tax-free loan, basically. And then you can use it for healthcare costs, or in this case, you guys have figured out how to do it for food and exercise as well. Yeah, it's very under-optimized. I mean, there could be trillions in these accounts. There's $150 billion in them now. Most people have access to them. But they're really designed by pharma. Most healthcare policy is designed by pharma. And they're these little accounts for once you're sick to basically buy pharma. That's how they're designed. Mm-hmm. But according to all healthcare regulators, you know, health, uh, a medical intervention, medicine, is something a doctor denotes to prevent or reverse a condition. And food and exercise, are that's our goal of our company. Our goal is to change incentives to put food and lifestyle habits. I mean, the four pillars, it's not that complicated, but it's food, it's sleep, it's movement, and it's management of chronic stress. Mm-hmm. We want to put that at the center of health. What we want to show, we're building a movement, you know, is you can really use your healthcare dollars, these dollars that are supposed to go to pharma for core root cause issues. And we're building a movement around that, which we've been honored to speak out on. What we want to do is really create that. And we're already engaging with a number of members of Congress who reached out to us on this on this campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going on Dan Crenshaw's podcast and, 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 and folks on the left too. Cory Booker has been huge on this. Um, we want to use this as a model of public policy. This is where public policy has to go. Mm-hmm. We have to give folks, and this happens in some European countries, we need to incentivize them to buy doctor-approved healthy food. Yeah. It um, it seems like such a, a bipartisan issue, right? Like we want people to be healthy. We want them to be eating uh, the right foods. We want them to generally be uh, metabolically healthy. And if they understand how to do that and they are doing it, they both can pass the knowledge in kind of a adult to child relationship, but they also can show the child just through their own actions. Hey, here's the food we eat. Here's the type of exercise we do. Here's the things that we do to be healthy. And you can, uh, similar to uh, teaching a family personal finance and change the trajectory of them financially, you can actually teach them nutrition and exercise. You can change the trajectory of that family for many generations to come because it gets passed down from generation to generation. I, I I really put it at a spiritual level. I mean, somebody asked me, you know, what are, what do we need to do from a policy perspective? What do we need to do societally to get to, to really radically change this? I joked, you know, we should put psilocybin in the water supply. But I, I'm only half joking. I, I, I really do tie that to this, that 25% of folks on, on uh, SSRIs. We, we've, we've generally, like, everything we incentivize kind of numbs you, you know, for, for mental health or, you know, the food we're eating is really like taking us away from reality and taking us away from awe. Mm-hmm. I really see this just personally speaking. And I, I'm, I know a lot of your, your listeners are on this journey. I think it ties very well into to Bitcoin. I mean, I think, I think the people this is really resonating on with Twitter are uh, moms and, and, and people, you know, who, uh, who support Bitcoin. I mean, I, I think it's people that are waking up and questioning the system, but I think like 
actually questioning the system, actually having awe and curiosity for interconnections, you know, and really investigating, you know, what your kid is eating and how movement, you know, I, I never thought about exercise until recently about just like, it's not just for vanity. It's, 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 it's understanding that that helps your cells. Mm -hmm. I, I really do think, right, the more we can foster that wonder about the interconnectivity of our body as a personal and public policy, you know, why aren't we teaching kids about how their cells work and how food impacts their cells and how to meditate and why sleep is important? I mean, we, we don't even talk to people about that. Mm -hmm. um, so it starts at home, but it's like, I really do feel, and, and our mission, what I hope to see in the world and what Casey and I are, you know, it's it's really amazing to work on with her on, we're, we're writing a book on this, um, is that this becomes the center of public policy. It's just like thinking about the individual. And I put, you know, food on that. I mean, this is a whole nother podcast, but the the psychedelic renaissance, I actually think is a massive societal. We've been totally gaslit on on what a good drug is and what a bad drug is. Um, and uh, and I, I think that's actually related. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Where can we send people to find you on the internet if they want to learn more? Yeah, so uh, we're starting this company, truemed.com. Mm -hmm. um, to specifically very simple value proposition, right? Mm -hmm. To, to enable you to, if you're qualified to, um, to purchase exercise, food, certain supplements, tax-free. Uh, so go to truemed.com. Uh, we're launching that soon. Uh, have a really great team uh, of mission-based people. We're really excited about that and devoting the next 20 years to that. Um, Callie means on Twitter. I've never been a big tweeter, but you know, it's been, it's been amazing. You're warming up. I'm warming up. Yeah. And, um, and, and these, these, uh, topics have resonated. So we actually just for our brand marketing for our company, we just need a lot of people to know about us. That's our kind of raw business. But what Justin and I are doing is we're going to continue exposing and speaking out about these issues. We're going to hire investigative journalists. We're working with members of Congress now, you know, Bill Ackman retweeted my tweet. We're speaking now to billionaires and prominent lawyers about organizing a class action lawsuit as our company kind of brand strategy. We're going to try to continue this mission forward of, you know, kind of on that level, exposing and trying to change the system from the top down. And what we see true medicine as is changing it from the bottom up by incentivizing healthier behaviors. I, I really do think, right, if you can save a family 30, 40 percent on healthy food, it's just basic economics. It's basic incentives. We need to do more and more of that. So that's what our company's trying to do. So truemed.com, Cali means on Twitter. I love what you guys are doing. Thank uh, you. As soon as I saw the tweets, I was like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> so please keep it up. And uh, I think people not only learned a lot, but uh, uh, it's an inspiring mission in terms of uh, wanting people to be healthy and kind of change their lives. So I appreciate everything you guys are doing and we'll definitely do it again in the future. Well, thank you, Pop, for questioning various systems and um, putting amazing vibes out there. Really appreciate you.